Welcome to podcast number 20 here at The Voice of the Arts with your host, yours truly, Joe Weber. In a marriage, there are plenty of opportunities for misunderstandings. A careless remark, a forgotten milestone, a promise not kept, and before you know it, you're in the midst of a heated exchange and bruised feelings. I was married for almost 42 years to a wonderful woman who would sometimes tell me something important when I was distracted by a problem in my manufacturing business, and a day or two later she would be getting dressed for an evening out and telling me to hurry up for the event while I was anticipating a relaxing evening in front of the TV with a semifinal baseball or basketball game. Needless to say, my recalcitrant attitude didn't fly very well. This problem of a marital misunderstanding is keenly portrayed here by New Yorker humorist Ian Frazier. The following short humor piece is called What I Am. It was written by Ian Frazier, and it appeared in the Shouts and Murmurs section of the New Yorker magazine dated May 7, 2007. What I Am by Ian Frazier. One of my jobs around the house is to load and run the dishwasher. I believe I do this job very successfully. The other day, I loaded both racks, top and bottom, according to a special method that I have. Then I turned the machine on. As a result of some mishap during the wash cycle, a number of the dishes were broken, including a serving dish with a pattern of leaves and olives, which my wife had particularly liked. While unloading the dishwasher, she discovered the breakage and she brought the pieces of the dish to show me. I expressed sympathy and then began to describe my method of dishwasher loading. This did not make much headway with her because she disagrees with my method and in fact has asked me several times not to use it. I kept trying to explain and in the course of the discussion, just for a second, she lost control and said something hurtful and unkind. I will not go into details except to say that she referred to me as an idiot. Okay, point taken. Based on some of the things I do and their consequences, her characterization of me is not inaccurate as far as it goes. What I object to isn't so much that as the terminology employed. Quite simply, idiot is not a nice word to call somebody, and I find myself asking, as Mr. Welch did of Senator Joseph McCarthy, have you no sense of decency, sir? Throughout my life, I have had to struggle to keep from thinking of myself in the limiting way that word implies. So for the record, I would like it known that I am not an idiot. I am a person who suffers from idiocy. Nobody knows what it is like to deal with crippling bouts of idiocy while trying to lead a normal life. The last thing I need is for somebody to make it harder by pointing out what an idiot I am. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. One day in December, I drove my wife to the bus stop. Before we got in the car, she gave me a greeting card for the cleaning people. I was to drop her off, go to the ATM, take out some cash, put it in the envelope with a card, and give it as a holiday thank you to the cleaning people. I did not want the card rattling around in the front with me, so I opened the back door and laid the card in the middle of the back. The back seats had been folded down, and I put the card as far as possible from any crack it might slip into as a result of a swerve or a sudden stop. While we were driving, my wife asked me for the card. She wanted to write a little note to the cleaning people and sign it. I told her the card was in the back. She turned around and saw it there. She undid her seatbelt, crawled over the seat, and stretched out to reach it. 
She couldn't quite get to it, though, and she had to crawl even farther until only her feet were in the passenger seat. She grabbed the card and then eventually was able to slide back over the seat. Her clothes had become must, and I could tell that she was making an effort not to say what she thought. Now, was it idiotic, her word unspoken, of me to put the card in the back, equidistant from hazardous cracks? Well, yes and no. I believe I could argue both sides of this question and convince you of the justice of either one. But I'm afraid that would only help to make my wife's larger point. Nobody but a moron, in other words, would even think about such idiotic topics. So I have decided that the wiser course is to drop the matter entirely. By coincidence, just now I heard my wife downstairs reloading the dishwasher that I filled with breakfast and lunch dishes not half an hour ago. There were the sounds of dishes clattering and my wife shouting, No, no, no. It's sad that my own wife has been taken in by the many misconceptions associated with people like me. Those of us unfortunate enough to be afflicted with idiocy are not grotesque caricatures or figures of fun. Idiocy can strike anybody, from the man who says he cleaned your chimney to the President of the United States. Very few of us conform to the old stereotype of the guy in the dunce cap sticking his finger in a light socket. My wife notes, just parenthetically, that I did stick my finger in a light socket once. Recently, I was reading a book by Dostoevsky that I thought dealt with some of these issues in a sensitive way. It's called The Idiocy Sufferer, and I'm happy to report that in this new translation, the terms that cruelly objectify people like me have been updated more inclusively. Of course, the story's hero, Prince Mishkin, lived in an earlier time and so had to wash his dishes by hand. At the moment, I don't remember whether he dried them with a dish towel or put them in a dish drainer to air dry. For people with our disorder, the drying phase seems to be the problematic one. Do you know what a garlic press is? When telling this story, I've found that it is always a good idea to ask. A garlic press is a device that squeezes a clove of garlic through a grid of tiny holes. Many kitchens have one. This device is hand-operated and made of sturdy metal. You would think it could be put into a dishwasher like any similar utensil. And that's true, it can. With this important caveat, you must first take out any adhering garlic fibers, those which remain pressed against the back part of the grid with the holes or in the holes themselves. The dishwasher will not remove those fibers. They're too tightly packed against the thing or something. And during the wash cycle, the water will cause the garlic remnants to get all pasty against the metal and then when radiant heat bakes the dishes dry, the garlic fibers will be annealed and heat sealed to the metal until there is virtually no way of getting them off. My wife was standing over the sink when I came home from yoga the other day. She had the garlic press in one hand and a toothpick with a frayed end in the other. Broken toothpicks littered the counter. She was picking, scraping, and generally scrabbling at the garlic press to remove the etc., etc. She has, in fact, mentioned this garlic press problem to me before. She looked at me with an expression I have come to call her death ray. I said something like, that's right, blame the victim, referring, of course, to my disorder. I see that we idiocy sufferers have much educating of the public left to do. The preceding is called What I Am. It's written by Ian Fraser, and it was in the Shouts and Murmurs section of the New Yorker magazine, dated May 7th, 2007.
I'm staying single, conscience at ease. I'm free to mingle, I do what I please. When I'm out late nights, no one has my keys. Yeah, I keep my day nights doing what I please. You know, I don't have no star borders, because they keep you on the shelf. And I ain't taking orders, so I just go along enjoying myself. Should I go sailing across seven seas? No one can stop me doing what I please. Taking all the dances, that's because I do what I please. I blow in at these parties just like a reckless breeze. I outsmart all these other smarties because I do just what I please. You know, where there's no action, you will find that there's blues about. And I get my satisfaction only when I'm stepping out. And whenever I get tipsy out at one of these jamborees, no one can stop me, because I do what I please. like a restless breeze and doing what he pleases. Redmond was a talented arranger who had worked with Fletcher Henderson, the man who did a number of great arrangements for the Benny Goodman Orchestra. Before that, we heard a reading of Ian Fraser's New Yorker magazine Shouts and Murmurs piece called What I Am. I've got it in my files labeled The Idiocy Sufferer. Let's listen now to another regular contributor to The New Yorker and a past contributor to Saturday Night Live, Jack Handy. He's got some swell ideas for struggling artists. The following article appeared in the March 20th, 2006 edition of The New Yorker magazine. It appeared in the Shouts and Murmurs section, and it's called Ideas for Paintings by Jack Handy. Ideas for Paintings. Because I love art, I am offering the following ideas for paintings to all struggling artists out there. Some of those artists may be thinking, hey, I've got good ideas of my own. Really? Then why are you struggling? These ideas are free of charge. All I ask is that when you have completed a painting, as a courtesy to me, you sign it Jack Handy and your name or initials. And if the painting gets sold, I get approximately all the money. Good luck. Let's get painting. Stampede of nudes. The trouble with most paintings of nudes is that there isn't enough nudity. 
it's usually just one woman lying there, and you're looking around going, aren't there any more nudes? This idea solves that. What has frightened these nudes? Is it the lightning in the background, or did one of the nudes just spook? You don't know, and this creates tension. The Bleak Hotel A man is staring out the window of a bleak hotel room. He looks depressed. From the side, flying through the air is a football. And you realize, if he's depressed now, just wait until he gets hit in the head by that football. The Repentant Cameron Diaz Cameron Diaz, her tear-streaked face lit by a candle, gazes wistfully at a photograph of me. The weary peasants. Some tired-looking peasants are walking down a road at sunset carrying sheaves of wheat. A nobleman in a fancy coach is coming up from behind. This creates drama because you're thinking, why don't those peasants get out of the way? The boxers. Two boxers are wailing away at each other in a boxing ring. But then you notice that the people in the audience are also fighting one another, and it makes you ask, who are the truly barbaric ones here, the boxers or the spectators? Then you can turn the painting over and read the answer, the boxers. Still life with rabbit. A wooden table is chock-a-block with fruit, cheese, and a glass of wine. To one side is a dead rabbit, a dead pheasant, and a dead eel, and you're thinking, thanks for the fruit, but man, take better care of your pets. The Jolly Dancer. The scene is a flatboat on the Ohio River. A frontiersman who looks like me is doing his funny cowboy dance. Everyone seems to be enjoying the dance except for an insane simpleton who looks like my so-called friend Don. Crawling up behind Don is a big snapping turtle. The Expulsion of Adam and Eve. Biblical themes sell well. In this one, God hovers over Adam and Eve, kicking them out of the Garden of Eden. As they leave, and in an aside to Eve, Adam imitates the expression on God's face. Untitled. This can pretty much be anything. Just remember to make it good and to put my name on it. You've been listening to excerpts from an article titled Ideas for Paintings in the Shouts and Murmurs section of the New Yorker magazine dated March 20th, 2006. It's written by Jack Handy. Beautiful home by the bright bridge to the 
great to be in Jackson. See, I don't even have to enunciate tonight. Because in a lot of parts of the country, you know, people hear me talk, they automatically want to deduct 100 IQ points. Because apparently the southern accent's not the world's most intelligent sounding accent. You know, and to be honest, I mean, none of us would want to hear our brain surgeon say, all right, now what we're going to do is <laughs> saw the top of your head off Root around in there with a stick and see if we can't find that dad burn clot. Be like, no thanks, I'll just die, okay? <laughs> see, that's why Southern financial advisors have such a tough time. Nobody wants to give their money to somebody that talks this way. <laughs> well, the key is you got to diversify with your money. What we'll do, we'll take half of it, put it in a big mayonnaise jar, bury it out in your backyard. The other half, we'll take down to the dog track and bet on the one that does his business right for the race start. <laughs> and you know, we're not stupid in the South. I mean, we have words in the South they don't have in other parts of the country. My brother will use this one, used to could. Can you dance? Well, I used to could. <laughs> you give me a minute, I might could again. I'll tell you a good southern word, in there. My Uncle Gene will say that usually when he comes out of the bathroom after Thanksgiving. I wouldn't go in there if I was y'all. <laughs> and I know you heard this with somebody, or you see somebody you hadn't seen in a while, you go up to them, they go, how's your mom and them? Tolerable. I'll tell you, my granddad will use the word Ewans, which is y'all plus three. That's <laughs> what that is. I think my current favorite Southern word is sensuous. Told my old lady, sensuous up, get me a beer. <laughs> Jeff Foxworthy, ruminating on the difficulties of the Southern accent, and before that we heard Ralph Stanley and company with Rank Stranger. We're going to return now to the writings of humorist Ian Frazier. In this following piece, Frazier reads from a section of his serious work called Family, in which he traces the migration of his family from the East Coast to Ohio. This particular segment is about the death of Stonewall Jackson, the Confederate general, and his dying words. Uh, the section I'm going to read now is from my long work, Family, uh, and it's a section about the death of Stonewall Jackson. Stonewall Jackson was wounded at the Battle of Chancellorsville uh, 
lay in uh, illness for uh, some time after that, a week or so, uh, contracted a fever and uh, died. And uh, this is a section about his uh, last hours, or his, his last days. Mary Anna Jackson, that's his wife, was staying in Richmond at the house of the Reverend Dr. Moses Drury Hogue when word came that her husband had been wounded. Reverend Hogue was the Presbyterian orator Jackson had once made a special trip to Richmond to hear. His wife and other Richmond ladies had since befriended Anna. Due to the danger of capture, she did not go to Jackson for five days until after the railroad had been repaired. He had been moved in the meantime to a house on the Chandler Farm at Guinea Station, a stop on the railroad south of Fredericksburg. Again, Anna brought Hetty, her maid, and the baby, Stonewall's daughter. After the surgery, Jackson at first recovered well, resting comfortably and discussing theology and military strategy with his aides. But by the time Anna arrived, his condition had worsened. She had last seen her husband just over a week before. Now she saw him semi-conscious, semi-conscious, one arm gone, his remaining hand bandaged, his cheeks flushed with fever, his breathing labored, his face scratched, and the scratches dressed with Isinglass plaster. He revived, recognized her, and said, You must not wear a long face. I love cheerfulness and brightness in a sick room. The doctors, several had been sent to assist Dr. McGuire, told Anna that Jackson had developed pneumonia of the right lung. They blistered him with vacuum cups and gave him morphine and opium. He was in and out of consciousness from the time she arrived. He said things like, Tell Major Hawks to send forward provisions to the men. Order A.P. Hill to prepare for action. Pass the infantry to the front. Anna spent so much time with him that her baby got hungry. One evening, Anna read him psalms and sang hymns. On Sunday, May 10th, the doctors told Anna that Jackson would die in a few hours. She sat by his bedside and held his hand and told him that he would that day be with his maker in heaven. He regained consciousness and asked her what she was saying, and when she told him, he replied, Oh, no, you are frightened, my child. Death is not so near. I may yet get well. Anna flung herself across the bed, weeping. Then he asked Dr. McGuire if what his wife had said was true, and the doctor affirmed it. Jackson said that was all right, later adding, I have always desired to die on a Sunday. Anna set Julia, the baby, on the bed next to him. He saw his daughter and said, Little darling, sweet one. The baby smiled at him as long as he continued to notice her. At about three in the afternoon, he became restless. He called out orders and murmured disconnected words. Just before he died, he seemed to relax. He smiled as if in relief. He said, Let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. A short talk given by historians at the Chancellorsville battlefield usually concludes near the visitor center at the spot where Jackson was wounded. I stood with a small group of visitors and listened to historian James McKee describe Jackson's wounding and death. 
Next to me, a boy in a black T-shirt and drawstring camouflage pants sighted the pistol of his forefinger at joggers and bicyclists on a nearby road, as James McKee repeated Jackson's last words. And I began to cry silently and blink the tears so they wouldn't overflow, as I almost always do when I think of those words, as I have done sometimes late in the evening when repeating them to dinner party companions. Let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. In this sentence, perhaps the most famous dying utterance in American history, Jackson concentrated a lifetime of prayer and struggle and aspiration, his and that of the young country he had fought to divide. So many crossed water to get here. So many wanted to rest under the shade. The trees of Jackson's vision are the ones we could have cut down but decided not to. His river pertains to the Shenandoah of his early triumphs and the dangerous Potomac and the moat-like Rappahannock and the strategic Chickahominy. But it is the same spiritual water as the River Jordan and the River of Life and the river we shall gather at in the hymn. It is what the historical marker on Jackson Trail at the Chancellorsville Battlefield has in mind when it mentions the soldiers never crossing another earthly stream. In his last words, Jackson created America's best-known imaginary landscape. Let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. In the staccato rhythm of the words, I can see each step of the action. The sentence ascends in terraces to rest in peace. It undoes knots inside me. It exhales like a sigh. I can see the shining whorled river sl sliding by and the gently rising bank and the shaded grass trodden down after a day camp picnic across the river and under the trees. I see the columnar trunks almost in a row and the high ceiling where the leaves begin and the sketchier clouds and sky somewhere above. And then I get kind of carried away and I extend this landscape indefinitely in every direction and I imagine it as the new good place America in its best moments has hoped to be. And I populate it from the whole globe and I fill it with faces like those in a poster from an old epic Western movie and with cooking smells and music and maybe even a few car burglar alarms for verisimilitude. I will spare you all the details. Suffice it to say that all the drinking fountains work across the river and under the trees. Before the Civil War, America didn't know if it was a country or lots of different promised lands. People invented the America they wanted to live in and then struggled to live there. Across the river and under the trees combined all these invented countries into one, Across the river and under the trees descended like a beneficence in the last moments of a fierce man's life and crystallized his fierceness to purity. Across the river and under the trees carried no demurring subclauses or riders. It included us all, people Jackson considered infidels, men he would have shot unblinking in life. Across the river and under the trees was poetry, to equal the nation-making poetry of Lincoln, and the only line of public poetry to come from the South in the war. Even though Stonewall Jackson fought for the slave power, and though his faith is beyond me, and though he did not like newspaper correspondence, and though he killed the boy whose family had the shoe store, and though the flag of his cause still scares me when I see it on the radiator grill of a truck in my rearview mirror, 
and though I am more than glad that his side lost, I dream of across the river and under the trees. In the 
Well, folks, that brings us to the end of podcast number 20 here at The Voice of the Arts. Joe Weber saying so long. Thanks for listening. Thank you.